I'm Alex Escobar, and welcome to Screw the Stock Market, where we'll explore the world of alternative investments outside of the stock market so we can change our lives, take control of our future, and find those coveted low-risk, high-reward opportunities for building wealth. Let's do it. Hi. On today's episode, we're talking to Eric Carey, who happens to be my business partner in apartment building syndications. We'll talk a little bit about his life story, where he came from, and how he got to where he is. He'll share some of his ideas on success and tenacity and what it takes to be successful when some others aren't. One of the other interesting points that we discuss is his past as a stock market insider, as a stockbroker. He discusses some of the things he saw in that line of work, like volatility and market manipulation by these huge institutional investors and how he came to the conclusion that real estate was really his best move towards wealth building. And so I think, you know, he came to the same conclusion as me, but he was actually an insider. And so I'm really excited to share his thoughts and and share his experience. And I hope you get a lot from it today. Thanks. Eric, thank you so much for joining me. I'm excited because first of all, I know you, you're my partner and, and we've done good things together. And on this show, which might end up being called, this is our first episode, so right. it might change the name, but I think it's going to be called Fuck the Stock Market. And so I'm, <laughs> I'm excited. I don't even say bad words, but really fuck them, you know? And so, you know, I'm excited to have you for a few reasons. First of all, because you've taught me a ton about apartment buildings and, and investing in that space. So it's one of the most beneficial alternatives to the stock market that I believe in, but also because you come from that world. You, you're you're a stock market insider. And so maybe you don't feel the same way that I do. And I'm just excited to have you and kind of hear your thoughts on the topic. But please, I'll I'll give you a chance to just introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about your your background and um, we'll go from there. Take it away, please. Sure. And and congratulations on the first episode. This is epic. I'm completely in awe. And I think this is just a fantastic journey and I'm happy to be a part of it with you. So but again, if I if I get too long winded, just 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 cut me off. Be, oh, you know, I should keep track. Right, I'm timer. I'm going to keep track. <laughs> but uh, I'll, I'll try to keep it as as straightforward as possible, and I'll, I'll try to go into some detail where I think it might be helpful to the listeners to to really be able to benefit from the journey, the emotion, you know, the, the disappointments, et cetera, et cetera. And I like to be as candid and transparent as possible, and so I hope that comes through to the listeners. So, having said that. My name is Eric Carey, and uh, I'm a local Washingtonian. As a matter of fact, sixth generation Washingtonian. You don't meet many of us. But the part where my story gets interesting is, in, in my opinion, and I hope it, in, in the opinion of others, is you know I, I come from a divorced uh, childhood. You know, parents divorced at age six, and at, at my age of six, and I have two other siblings, and we were separated. You know, the, the girls went with mom, and I went with dad. It wasn't really my decision. Obviously, I was a six-year-old, but you know, it, it, there wasn't much stability in living with my father, unfortunately, and as he was trying to you know, re-begin his life. And you know, that led me to spending a lot of time with my grandparents, my, my grandmother and my great-grandmother, because my, my grandfather had passed away. So you know, I was uh, lucky enough to have an environment where it, it, it wasn't the traditional environment, but it, there was lots of love in the home. And, and that, was, that was perfectly fine by me. I didn't think I was missing out on anything. We lived in a not so great part of Washington, D.C. At that time, uh, Southeast D.C. wasn't exactly what it is now. Now there's, you know, now it's the last part of the city to be uh, to be renovated and gentrified. So now it's, you know, it's fantastic homes and condos and such. But back then it wasn't that wasn't the case. So if at any rate, you know, you 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 as a child, you don't know the difference, you know, as happy go lucky and just as as feeling as fortunate as anybody else uh, who was around. But at any rate, uh, from that point, I was always pretty pretty good in school. I always tried hard. I wasn't always the brainiac, but I tried really hard. I, I just had the work ethic. I just tried really hard. And I always, when I was a kid, I always thought that others had it easier than I did. And uh, and and that coupled with the, I don't want to get too off track, but coupled with with um, quasi poverty, you know, middle lower middle class income scenario. I mean, that that really made for, uh, as I was getting older, you start realizing those differences, you know, as a, as a young person. And 
and you try to overcome those differences. So that's so that's always been, I suppose, the chip on my shoulder, the the, the motivating factor that I was always trying to overcome. And you know, I was I was very competitive uh, because I was always in some kind of sport, whether it was football or track and field or basketball or something. wasn't always the greatest, but I always tried. I always I thought I was the greatest. So I guess that made the difference. And so um, uh, I was lucky enough to pass a couple of exams and be invited to to go to a, a pretty prestigious small school in the, the Washington metro area where there were all, all, all boys and, you know, your tie and, and blazer and uniform and, you know, priests and nuns. And, you know, that was for me, that was one of the first times I had ever been in the same school for more than one year. So, so that made it interesting too, because that I finally found what I thought was stability and a brotherhood and, you know, a fraternal order, which is what it represented to me. And it still does to this day, by the way, and I'm, I'm 50 years old now. Um, so, so that was, that was life-changing for me. And the, all these young people were of, you know, of various different backgrounds and communities and cultures, but it didn't matter. They were from all over the country. It didn't matter. And uh, as long as you were a, a pretty good athlete and, and, and I was at that point, that, that's all that mattered. So that was the, the equalizing and stabilizing factor. And it was just fantastic. Anyway, after finishing there, I, I ended up going to University of Maryland and I have a, an economics degree and a government politics degree. My focus was international economics with a minor in both Spanish and, uh, and government and politics. So I thought I was headed, headed to the, the foreign service to become an ambassador. Anyway, I'll so say I, your Spanish is good, by the way. Well, it, it's not bad. I'm, I'm practicing, right? <laughs> As a matter of fact, I'll, I'll come back to another story. I'm currently in Spain and I'll come back to that in a second and tell you why I'm here. And, cool. and, okay. how, and how real estate has helped me to be here. But nevertheless, okay. um, I'll come back to that in just a second. So so I was able to get into uh, with pretty decent grades. Uh, I didn't play sports after high school, but it gave me the, the it was a catalyst to get me into a good environment. It was a catalyst to keep me competitive, et cetera, et cetera. And so I needed that. You know, I didn't have any uh, any necessarily uh, older siblings, males or. And by that point, I was sort of really separated from the sisters still. So I, I didn't have that that closeness that I really wanted to, that I think most people probably have, siblings have, but just don't realize that how valuable it is. Yeah. So um, so now we're, you know, we've been catching up since I, you know, since since college. But but nevertheless, for just a long time, I had to read to rely upon that competitive nature. So I suppose it was just part of the blood. Maybe it was part of survival. Uh, it had to be. It was part of survival at that point because I, I felt like I would be left behind. I felt like I wanted additional things, not always things that were material things, but you know, I, I wanted more accomplishments. I saw my peers accomplishing things. I was, I was, I'm, I'm a musician. So I was in the band, I, in, in the orchestra over, over at the school. And I it was playing on, on the football team and running track and field. And I was always with these guys who I thought were great. They were phenomenal. They were heroes. Many of them went on to become professional athletes and professional musicians. And I was just you know, in the crowd with some great guys who are doing great things and they all look different, but it didn't matter. So, so that's at, at the core, I was fortunate enough, didn't realize that then, but I realize it now, fortunate enough to be in that environment. So those are all my big brothers and all my heroes and my superheroes. So uh, ended up going to University of Maryland, did really well. Uh, took the, as a senior, I had an opportunity to spend a semester as an exchange student in Costa Rica. And so that was just phenomenal. So again, and so now I'm sort of one, what I'm trying to build here is a picture of all the really small accomplishments that help individuals to take action and help them to be confident enough to take action. Because at the end of the day, I think the point that really matters in, in, in whether who's successful, who's not successful is not whether your parents have a lot of capital to support your endeavor or, or you're a 4.0 student with a great SAT score. I think what really matters is that self-confidence. And, and I, I met people who, who don't have all those other traditional benchmarks that you would think would make you successful, but they're wildly successful in spite of it. And so, so that's what I'm trying to build here. So I I, I didn't come from a fantastic intellectual background, although education for my family was not an option. You, you will get a you know a, a graduate degree. It wasn't an yeah. option. So um, and so at any rate, so yeah, I, I heard I, you. I've heard you emphasize a few times now how hard you tried, how you weren't necessarily the most you know raw gifted person right. in, in all these different areas, but you 
you had some hunger, you had some some drive and something that really, you know, I guess effort is going to be the, the driving factor. And I'll say my dad has always said, you know, there's a bunch of people who are much smarter than me, who are doing much worse than me out there. There's a bunch of people who are much more talented, but effort is going to be the thing that's going to set, set us apart. You know, I love it. And, and he's spot on. He's yeah. spot on. So so we, I ended up, uh, after finishing University of Maryland, I, I came back from Costa Rica. That was fantastic. It was, a, again, eye-opening. It gave me tremendous confidence to be able to, to speak a different language, live on my own with the family. I was really entrenched. It was fantastic. And from that point forward, it, my attitude was, there is absolutely nothing I can't accomplish because you know, my Spanish, you know, when you learn book Spanish, it's different, right? So when you, when you become submerged, you know, it's really an eye-opening experience. You feel like you're starting all over again. And so anyway, just to make a long story short, what I'm stating here is many, many small accomplishments that at the time, during during the, the, the accomplishment, you don't think much of it. But when you sit back and you look at the chronology of events and, and you, you figure out that this is what has caused me to be fearless or this is what has caused me to take action, it's those little, those little things. And you have to learn to celebrate those, of course. I didn't do it at the time, but you know, over time, I learned to celebrate those little small accomplishments. They each gave me the, uh, again, the intestinal fortitude to continue. They each gave me the, they, they kept pushing my glass ceiling a little bit higher, just a little bit higher each time to the point where there is, there isn't one anymore. And, and so I think that's, what's really important. So, so I returned from Costa Rica and uh, didn't have a job, finished college and didn't plan well, but felt confident that, that something would show up had a bunch of different small jobs, odd jobs here and there. And oh, and by the way, when I was 14, I actually had my first company. I, was, I had a landscaping company with my best friend at the time. And, really? Uh, yeah, I did. It was just really funny. We were washing cars and uh, mowing lawns and shoveling snow. It was just, we, we thought we were, you know, the Rockefellers. It was great, you know, have a few dollars in your pocket, you know, but, but uh, and, you, and you earned it the hard way, but it was fantastic. And I, I, I recommend that to anybody. I have three sons and, you know, I have them doing the same thing. It's just, it's just phenomenal. It's those little, those little things. So anyway, so um, had jobless, finished college and, and looking for odd opportunities and didn't have any, so, so I thought any real skill that was transferable into a certain career. And a couple of years went by uh, odds and end type of, type of companies and positions and a very good friend from college told me that he was applying for a position at a financial services company. And he said, Eric, it's all math based. You, you've always been great in math. Just, just, just come and just take the exam. So, well, sure. Why not? It, it wouldn't hurt. So it was actually the series. It was a precursor to the series seven exam. And anyone who knows that that world knows that the series seven is the license for stockbrokers. So, and there, there are several different licenses. That's sort of the entry level if you're going to be a stockbroker and actually trade stock on the retail side. So we, we took the exam. We both did well. He ended up going to American Express Financial Services, and I got picked up by Merrill Lynch uh, in Washington, D.C. And it was, that was just eye-opening. And I, you know, I thought, you know, here, I'm in, I'm in the interview. This is a funny story. I tell my kids this. They, they, just, they just laugh at me. I'm in the interview and I'm thinking I'm prepared. I rehearsed my, you know, my lines. I got my Brooks Brothers suit on and my wingtips and I'm ready. And I go in and it was the most laid back conversation I had ever had. It wasn't in my, it didn't feel anything reminiscent of an interview. And I had been practicing and, you know, getting ready. And literally the, the, the questions were, were, do, do I have what it takes to succeed? All the, now when I look back on it, all the questions had nothing to do with what I had studied in school, my GPA, my you know SAT scores. None of that didn't talk about my anything. What what he wanted to know is, and I'll never forget, he had a stack of resumes on his desk. They were, I mean, you probably see two inches thick, a stack. And he showed me. He, he put it right in front of me, and he says, "I see people like you come and go all the time. What you know? What's so special about you?" And you know, I mean, I froze. Like, oh my god, how do we? How do you answer that question? You know, so I. I piecemealed some kind of response. I'm not sure what I said. I piecemealed something together. And uh, at the end of the day, uh, he, at the end of the interview, he said, sell, sell me this pen. And he gave me a pen out of his pocket. I swear, I swear it's the funniest thing. <laughs> Clearly he was watching some of those old black and white movies, you know, of the uh, salesmanship and everything. And I had to sell him a pen. It was a Mont Blanc pen with a, a blue tip on it. And that, and 
I guess I sealed the deal and in, wow. in that situation. But but at the end of the day, he's right. Nothing else mattered. What mattered was in the heat of the moment, can you deliver? Can you, you know, can you lean on all your experiences and appeal to me in such a way that you can be influential, that you can be detail-oriented, even when you're sweating profusely and you're afraid you're going to make a mistake, can you still deliver? And I'll, I'll never forget that. And I, I, I think I, I've since left the job, you know, for three or four, four years afterward, but it was one of the best experiences I had ever had working six days a week, cold calling in the bullpen. I mean, it was lots of energy, lots of young guys just like me. It was just, it was phenomenal. It was a phenomenal experience. And I, I couldn't, I couldn't do, that was a major part of what I do now. And I couldn't do this now had it not been for that. So fast, I'll go fast forward a bit so I don't, I don't get too long-winded. But after that, uh, left Merrill Lynch, started dabbling into my own financial services, couldn't gather enough customers and clients to really be a, a big impact, started looking for other jobs to help me build, keeping, keeping my eye on what I wanted to do ultimately, which is you know help investors, you know, find investments, you know, figure out which investments are better, et cetera, et cetera, and, and, and monitor and manage them. And uh, eventually started a started taking some of my investors who were on Wall Street with me and doing one-off investments in single-family properties. And I noticed very quickly that it, it wasn't fast enough for me. It, once doing one or two, it, it wasn't intriguing enough because the template wasn't, I guess, the type of properties I'm looking for weren't that intricate because we weren't building new properties. We were renovating existing properties. So after yeah. a while, there's a template you follow. So it, it just didn't have the appeal. Although so was we're this before or after the bubble in 2008? This is, this is before the bubble. And so we we were doing well. And I don't, maybe it was just luck that we were doing well because it was before the bubble. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I have my own bubble story too, by the way. <laughs> so we were doing well and they were getting great returns, better than what we were doing on Wall Street. And these were investors who already had pretty good portfolios. They were looking for something alternative. And so it fit the bill for them and for me. The problem that I had was I learned that I, I was more of a micromanager than I thought I was because I, I started to look at the deliverables that the contractors were, were providing to us and looking at the time frame in which they were providing it. And I was unhappy with both. They were getting the job done. Yes, we were selling the properties. Yes, that worked out perfectly well. But it wasn't my best product. It, it wasn't the best product. And therefore, I was uncomfortable continuing that route because I, if I'm going to put my name on it, it has to be stellar. It has to be the best we can possibly do. So I started a general contracting company and started doing my own renovations with, with employees and such. And that was fantastic. And it gave me the, the stream, if you will, that I needed to control to ensure that the investors were satisfied with the returns, that, that I was satisfied with the product, and that there was a win-win for the consumer who would then come and either rent or buy the property. And everyone was happy at the very end. And you know, more importantly, I was able to, able to deliver the product in a faster period of time, which mm -hmm. means there was you know, less cost and better product and so forth and so on. So I, I try to give the customers a little bit more than what they were expecting. The customers in this case being the, well, there are two sets of customers. One is the, the occupant who's buying the property. The other is the, the shareholders or the investors who are investing with me to buy these properties in the first place, my partners. So I wanted to make sure that everyone was able to receive more than they had expected. And in order to do that, I started a construction company. I don't know, uh, again, knew nothing about construction other than those first couple of flips, but it ended up being a fantastic environment. So I'll fast forward quickly. So, real quick, Eric, I just want to say we're at 17 minutes right now. Yeah. And that's, I think we're pretty good. We're at your adult life. We're about to make the shift to, to multifamily. But um, <laughs> finally, <laughs> no, no, that's okay. That's okay. So what was I going to say? I was going to just interrupt and say, you know, time is one thing. And then maybe when we do make that shift, if we could go back and, and talk a little bit about what your experience was in the stock world and just kind of your overall sure. opinion and why you left and why you felt you need, you could provide something better. Oh, that's great. Great questions and great points. So uh, I'll go back now and, and revisit that. So when I was in the market, when I was a, a again, series seven registered uh, stockbroker on the retail side, what I found was the market was slowly shifting. And, you know, I, I was a new broker only a couple years in, but that's when fee-based money management services started to, to, to become more prolific. You know, that's when the Charles Schwab's were opening up and they were offering, 
you know, one one fee or fee based money management services, which which prior to that movement, if you will, your stockbroker was compensated when he or she would buy or sell a stock for your portfolio. So so at the end of the day, if your stock didn't go up, that had no impact on whether or not your stockbroker was, was receiving their own specific compensation for actually making the trade for you. And there's always there are always instances where you know some individuals don't do what's in the best interest of their client. And as a fiduciary, I thought it was always important to put my client's needs before my own. My my needs, I mean, I can't say my needs don't matter, but I'm I'm in it to serve my client. So if you're not in it for that reason, then then, then you're in the wrong field. So it's so it, nevertheless, that movement was was taking place and mutual funds and all that business was was cropping up. So if my client can take a million dollars and just put it into a mutual fund and that, and that served their purpose, although they they couldn't control what the, the mutual fund manager was investing in necessarily, but if they wanted to set it and forget it to coin a phrase, then that, that wasn't, that wasn't my interest. You know, I, I, by that point I had become an an SME, a subject matter expert, I think, and uh, breaking down balance sheets and breaking down industries and really understanding uh, the movement of the market and stocks, et cetera, et cetera, and and understanding patterns and and how to use them to make money for my clients. So a mutual fund just wasn't appealing to me. So I had some conversations with some of my clients and they agreed. And we tried to find other ways to to be more involved, more hands-on and receive better returns. There's something called an Ibbotson chart. And you know, over the course of the year uh, of of several years, an Ibbotson chart compares the returns of all various asset classes and and real estate tends to do better than the stock market over the over a course of uh, of a number of years so and incidentally it doesn't have all the fluctuation that is prevalent in the market now if you're a day trader you want fluctuation that's great it's a different kind of market that's not that's not my market and nor was it for my clients we we weren't day trading we were trying to take on minimal risk and obtain obviously maximum return so that was the reason we ended up leaving the Wall Street scenario and really going into hands-on investments like real estate. Obviously, I'm a big believer that you know there are better alternatives than the stock market out there. Do you agree with me when I say fuck the stock market? Listen, I'm probably the only stockbroker who doesn't own stock. Oh wow! Okay, I do not own stock. And recently, my uh, my my. Uh, my oldest son has started, he was involved in that, uh, what do you call that, uh, that large short sale that occurred recently over the last couple of weeks. Ah, okay. Okay. The GameStop thing? Right. Sort of his foray into the stock. He'd been watching it for a while and he and I had conversations about you know, how the market really works and you know, what influences it, et cetera, et cetera. And so he got a taste of it and, and, and made some money. And it's, it's, I had to explain to him, you know, it's, it's, it's heavily manipulated. And because of that, it, it lost its appeal for me. Now, the part that did not lose its appeal is the skill of analyzing an asset, you know, the economy, et cetera, et cetera, the, how, how things, how current events, interest rates, or what have you affect that particular asset class. And that's valuable. But in, in terms of investing in the stock market, it's not for me. It's, it's, I have in the past, it's just not appealing. I, I'd rather be able to somewhat predict my outcome in terms of my returns by being heavily involved in the asset. I, I can't just set it in and forget it. It doesn't, it doesn't work for me. And for many clients, it doesn't either. The fluctuations that they're unsettling, you know, some call, frankly, and I don't want to offend anybody, but in the industry, some, some would call the investors who get in on the retail side, dumb money, meaning, meaning it's the investor who doesn't really know better and they're sold on the idea of, oh, put it in your retirement account, your IRA, your 401k or what have you, and just let it sit for 30 years. And then at some point, it's going, you know, it'll, it'll go up enough over 30 years where you'll make some actual money. Where the real money, if you will, the real money is not made over 30 years. It, it's, made in, it's made in seconds. It's made in days. And that's where the real money is made, where large tranches of, of stock are bought and sold with a you know a, a penny a penny movement or a fraction of a movement, that's where the real big money is made. And you know most of us are locked out of that marketplace. So that's where yeah. the big institutional guys play. And you know it, it for for me and for many investors, I'd rather have something more predictable, something I can have a bit of control over, and be able to feel 
like I'm contributing and not just sitting back and waiting and letting others manipulate the the investment for their own gain. And I end up with what they you know, what they've left over. And I, I think this yeah. way we're we're doing much better. Plus, in addition to in addition to that, the benefits of, of real estate are when it's a trifecta. You know, you your 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 compensation is a couple. You you, you get compensated a couple different ways. You, you know, you have a, you know, tax breaks. You have write offs. You have income. You have appreciation. I mean, you're, you're paying down your debt. I mean, the, the, the benefits are just tremendous. Wonderful. Well, so it sounds like we're pretty much on the same page. I think you put it much more eloquently than me. And I've, I've been taking <laughs> notes and I'm I'm going to probably the same message, but mine is a little bit more obscene and yours is a little bit more <laughs> Shock and awe. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, no, but that's good. Thank you for that. Um, so we're making the shift, right? So we sure. talked about one of a lot of the reasons why you don't like playing in the stock market. I think for me, the big key word out of that was it's manipulated. It's not a fair game. And now you've presented real estate as this alternative that you've been, you've been working in, your investors have been winning in. And, right. um, but we didn't get to multifamily yet. You're about to make the leap. So so catch yeah. us up on, on, on that big leap because that's, that's, right. that's a step that a lot of people... I think you talked about glass ceilings. That's another glass ceiling that a lot of investors, people, you know, a lot of people own an investment property here or there. And they think someday if I, if I was a millionaire, I'd buy an apartment building if I was rich or, and so I think that's a big glass ceiling that, um, that's just something that you were able to overcome. So tell us about that leap, which I, th I think is a big one. You're right. It's a huge leap. And to go back and, analyze the mindset. It, it was really a mindset of need for efficiency. And all I can say is it, it, it must be, in, in retrospect, it must must be that competitive spirit and that competitive nature of, of that I have that forces me to try to find a more efficient way of doing something. And, and oftentimes it is something just that small that's my motivation you know how can i do this more efficiently not 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 that i don't want to work as hard but if i can do twice as much by being efficient then that's that's the that's the icing on the cake for me and i remember i was in a ria meeting and there was a a group of there were a group of speakers who had come through and i i'd always been a little hesitant about going to rias because well, after the first couple because it seemed that no one was, was talking about the kind of things that I wanted to talk about, which was doing multifamily. And I also found that many of the individuals at the, the RIA club, at least in my experience, oh, were... Could you share what a RIA is just for... Oh, I'm sorry. A RIA, someone doesn't know. Sure. RIA is a real estate investment club. Uh, R-E-I-C or R-E-I-A, Real Estate Investment Association. And they're, they're just nonprofit organizations around, well, I suppose a nonprofit, it's <laughs> just different organizations, uh, a collective of individuals who all gather uh, on a routine basis to discuss real estate strategies. Uh, oftentimes a, a presenter will come in and teach or educate you about various aspects of, of real estate to help everyone get started. And it's a great place to go and network and meet other individuals who are like-minded to help you fill the, the voids that you need to fill in order to be successful or in order to, to pursue this, this, this market or this industry. And I, I went to a couple and in my experience, I, I didn't find what I was looking for. I was actually looking for the next step because I was looking for more efficiency. I was looking for demonstrable systems I could put in place. And, and what I found were most people were just flipping houses and that, that was fantastic, but it just didn't appeal to me. And I'd already been there, done that, and it just didn't appeal. So I was looking for something a little, a little more interesting. And lo and behold, on one particular uh, visit, there were a couple of speakers who had come through and each of the speakers was talking about something different as it pertained to buying a single family house or buying a duplex or what have you. And so I'm, I'm politely listening and because you can always find nuggets here and there. So I'm politely listening and trying to extract what I can. The last speaker comes up and he starts talking about large multifamily. Well, now I'm on the edge of my seat. I'm leaning forward. My eyes are wide. You know, I'm, I'm taking copious notes because this is exactly what I was looking for. I'm thinking, where has this guy been all my life? This is exactly what I, what I need. And the way he outlined it, it wasn't as if he was one of these gurus who was trying to get you to do all the work and he takes all the profit, et cetera, et cetera. This is, this was a guru. This is someone who was 
really, I could tell he was really giving you everything you needed. And of course, I didn't know exactly what I needed, but it just, it just, it, it resonated with me. For some, He just seemed direct. He seemed honest. He seemed straightforward and transparent. He answered questions honestly and fully, at least to, to the degree that I needed it. And, and it was just phenomenal. And so after that, I took a couple of classes and I never ended up getting a mentor, but I took a couple of classes that, that he had offered. And it was, it, it, it took me back to my days at, at, as a series seven broker, analyzing balance sheets, breaking down the profit and loss statement, which shows all the income and losses on the property and expenses, et cetera. It, 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 I mean, I'd already done all that. So for me, it, it, it wasn't a challenge. It was just looking at the numbers differently as they pertain to this asset as opposed to other assets. And then I, and I quickly learned that you absolutely can increase the value of the asset. You can push the, the, the value if you want to do value add. You, you're almost flipping a building as opposed to flipping an individual property. And so then you take a step back and you go, okay, this process is, is outlined, it's methodical, it's easy to follow, but wow, where do, I, where do I get the money to start? Where's that piece to the puzzle? But I didn't let that missing piece to the puzzle keep me from at least pursuing the part that was going to get me uh, two-thirds of the equation. So, you know, I mean, there are those who need to have all the answers before they get started. And, and I'm not the opposite, but I'll, I'll try to fill in the blanks as, I, as I'm on the way. I don't build the bridge as I'm crossing it, but, but I don't wait till the bridge is built before I start running across. I, I want to get as much as I can and go in the right direction and then kind of, you know, readjust your aim as you get to the other side. And that's what I did. And, you know, just being around individuals who were buying apartment buildings, putting myself in that scenario really opened my eyes. It, it was just a different world. You know, I come from a community where people didn't talk about money, didn't talk about your net worth, uh, didn't, I, I didn't, I, you know, it was just foreign, foreign to me. I'm sitting down having lunch with individuals who are just casually talking about, you know, the, the deals they've done or, or lost or their net worth and, and how partnering was, was the, the best thing since sliced bread. And I thought, oh, I'm in the right place at the right time. And, 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 you know, Alex, there are only a few times in your life, in my opinion, when, if, if at all, when you, you feel like you are in, when you feel like you spent the last several years preparing for this moment, for the first time, that's how I felt. Like, wow, the, the, being on Wall Street and doing that business and then doing the construction, uh, having the construction. I, had a, I was a GC for 20 years and I was still a GC when I, had, when I was meeting these folks who are doing apartment investing and so forth. So I was I'm sure that's something that you could bring to the table, right? Uh, oh, absolutely. Uh, and, and most of them didn't have the construction background. They were, you know, hiring out subcontractors and GCs to do their work and, and, and overpaying, right? Because they didn't really know. So here, you know, I'm, I'm bringing this financial into the table. I'm bringing the, the construction side or, or major GC renovation stuff to the table. And I felt like, I mean, it was one of those eye-opening aha moments. Like, oh my gosh, are you kidding? I mean, it's, it, it'll almost bring a tear. I don't want to get emotional, but it's, it'll bring a tear to your eye, you know, because you because you think you're in control. And philosophically speaking, we all think we're in control, right? Mm -hmm. we, some, some of us think that there, that there's no master plan. And, and I don't. I'm not questioning anyone's belief, but I'm telling you, it, it, it's it was one of those moments where where you just sit back and look at the sky and you go, oh my God, thank you. You know, th this is what I've been waiting for. It's what I've been looking for. I'm in the right place. I, I'm getting goosebumps now just talking about it, just talking about that moment. Because it was one of those powerful moments where you just feel like, you know, that everything came together at the, at the right time. And, you know, you, you can't wait to dive in with those feet. And that's what I did. I, I didn't have time to question it. It, was, it just felt right. How powerful, man. Yeah. No, that's huge. And, and it, it matters. I mean, you talk about the emotion of the goosebumps and that it's, so valid because we all get up and we work every day and we're living our lives and we have one life to live and to feel all of a sudden like no no it's all been for something and that's it's right. all taking me in a direction it matters it's it's life and death you know so that's exciting to hear and um you know i've been there with you you know yeah. and and so i felt the same way um so let, let's let's dive into some of your deals like what um what was your first multifamily kind of kind of deal looking like because as you learned about it, that's one thing, but then taking the leap into action is another, right? So that's right. That's getting right. your education is, is a very important first step for anyone. I've had a, a, a lot of calls over the last few weeks 
with people who are like, okay, how are you doing this? Like, are, are you rich now? Like, what, what is this? And, <laughs> and, no, I'm not rich yet, you know, not yet, but you can still take action. And, and definitely the first step for me was education. And it sounds like it was for you, but then taking that leap into action is still another leap, right? Thank you so much for listening to the show. It's a big step to realize that there's a whole world of opportunity out there for you. And then you've already started to dive into your education, which is required to be able to navigate the world beyond the stock market. But the next step is to take action. So if you want a chance to invest with me and my team, sign up for our investor club at legatoinvest.com invest. We'll schedule a call with you, get to know you, your background, and your investment objectives. And if there's a good fit, we'll start to present you with live opportunities to invest in multifamily apartment deals. So again, legatoinvest.com slash invest. Thanks again. So once I understood the process and understood the, the nuances, and, and it's, it's, not, it's not complicated. It's, it really isn't complicated. And as a matter of fact, larger deals are, and it sounds, sounds like it's not intuitive, but it, it, larger deals are easier to do than the very small deals. When you're buying one-off single family unit, for example, you know, it's, 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 it's intuitive to, to think that that's the best way to proceed and put your toe in the water. And I'm afraid to have, you know, this, this mortgage outstanding. And if my renter leaves and I'm covering two mortgages, if I own my primary residence also, and you know, it's, 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 it's nerve wracking. But when you step out of that picture and, and you look at look at it mathematically, if I'm going to lose a renter or or two or three renters, I'd, I'd rather have a larger portfolio than a smaller one because it still balances out the income. I can still pay the mortgage and pay expenses and and maybe have some profit left over. Even if you don't have a lot of profit left over, you still have the comfort of knowing you're paying down your mortgage and you have a little reserve on the side for whatever else may happen. There's insurance in place. You know, maybe you have a property manager, maybe you don't, but still there's that comfort. So I had to, I had to unthink again, that, that the glass ceiling. And, and once I was able to truly feel confident that I knew enough of the process of the potential and the potential pitfalls in the asset class, then I didn't need to know anything else. Every, everything else was just an, an additional, additional small piece to the puzzle, but it wasn't a major piece to the puzzle. And so my, my very first, of course I tried, oh, I, oh, I tried some, I was flying to various parts of the country, looking at deals and uh, having interviews with property managers and brokers. So you have to get your network started. And, you know, I was spending a lot of time getting my network started and it, it was a, it was a, it was a full-time job in addition to being a general contractor at the time. So I was still working as a general contractor. So, so it was a full-time gig, but I was, I was just loving it. You know, I would, I couldn't wait to get on my laptop at night and make relationships with brokers or attorneys or whoever I thought could could refer me to deals. And so, and I'm practicing running the numbers and submitting letters of intent, which is the you know the, the basic contract your offer of, of what you're willing to pay for an asset. And and I was getting declined all over the place, and I just kept trying and kept trying, trying to figure out the piece to the puzzle. And I I wasn't just trying for the sake of trying. I kept trying to figure out, okay, well, I, I offered X on this property. So if, if my offer wasn't accepted, then what is it? Was it, is it, is it the, the way I look at the asset? Is it, is it my, is it the cap rate? Is it the income? Am I looking at the numbers differently? And the cap rate is just simply the, a number that's utilized by the banks and the brokers to help to justify the value of an asset. And as that cap rate goes down, the value of the asset goes up. It's just an inverse relationship between the cap rate and the price of the asset. So, so I'm trying to make sure I have these inputs so that my system, again, I'm looking for maximum efficiency. You know, just from 30 years back, I'm trying to be more and more efficient every time. So I'm trying to find ways to be more efficient so, so that my formula spits out the right answer every single time. And if it doesn't, then that means there must be something adverse occurring like maybe there, it's it's an emotional transaction with the with the the, the owner or mm -hmm. and they just want too much money and because they really don't want to sell it and so begrudgingly they put it on the market to see what the value is they put the market up to they market up too high to see where the numbers come in or maybe there is a pension fund which has a, a ton of capital and they don't have to borrow money like i do to buy an asset you know they, they're putting down i'm putting down 25 percent 
equity and 75% debt. Maybe they're putting down, you know, 70% equity and 30% debt. So they don't, they don't have, so they can, they can spend a little bit more on the property because they're not, they're not trying to maximize returns. They're looking for capital preservation as opposed to necessarily a lot of growth. So they might beat me out by, by being able to offer a lower price on an asset. So I had to factor in those things to the equation and just continue to keep going forward. And I learned that it's a numbers game. You know, look for the right markets, look for the right opportunities, and, and continually build your, your relationships with brokers and those people who can network with you, and also with investors. And uh, there's a school of thought that Oh, just find the right deal and the money is going to pop up. Well, you need to look for both simultaneously so that when the right deal does come along and you found the right asset, then you can then marry the right asset with the, the investors and, and manage the asset. And also looking at the market too. Where's the, where's the asset in the, where's the, the local economy in the real estate market? So there are several moving factors that you must monitor prior to acquisition, during acquisition, and that'll help you decide when you need to when you need to sell or dispose of the asset. So there's so many different moving parts, but I, I love all of it. I love all of it. So anyway, uh, you asked- so Tell us about the first one, yeah. My first, my first deal, uh, believe it or not, my, my first multifamily deal was 40, 39 units. And it, it was a deal that really, it, I say it dropped in my lap, but it, it dropped him. I got lucky because I think I was doing all the right things that I just described. I was analyzing markets. I was going to various different multifamily RIA groups. I was reaching out to those people who I thought had influence and what have you. And uh, it, it was a, a, a mass email that was sent out to several people. And I was on the email list and I, was, I crunched the numbers very quickly and it, it just made sense for so many reasons. I made an offer. The, the seller was offer, was asking a, a bit high of a price, but uh, it was about 15% overvalued, and which is customary, I, I thought, just the psychology of the sales process. And so I, I made a lower offer, one that I thought made sense based on the numbers, and it was declined. And so I thought, okay, well, that's interesting. And, and I had actually gone to the, to the, the location and met with the broker and met with the seller. We had lunch. I thought we were connecting. I thought there was a, you know, I thought it was, you know, mutual uh, uh, respect, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, he's looking for the best price. And I understand that. So at any rate, I, I, I lost a bit. And a couple of weeks later, I would check in just in case because things always happen. As you learn, you never know. The bigger the deal, the sometimes the the, the bigger the problems to get it closed. And uh, several several weeks went by, and I just was checking in with the broker and checked in with the 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 owner, and uh, he said, "Oh yeah, everything is going fine here. Just uh, you know, I'll call you if anything changes." And I, I hate that because I'm you know I hate to sit down and just wait. So at any rate, I I happen to be driving down south. And uh, I live in Maryland. I was driving down through Virginia. I think I was going to Georgia or something to look at another property. And I passed by the exit that led to this, the property that I had just lost out on. And so I said, oh, let me just call this owner. I'm just say, hey, I'm in your neighborhood. I just wanted to say, say hello. I'm just passing by, passing through. I did and left him a message. N- nothing special. Hey, just keeping in touch. You know, hope things went well with you and your, and your buyer. You know, just I'm, I'm passing through. Just call him to say hi. Left it at that. I get a call the next day and he says, are you still interested in the asset? To my surprise, I'm thinking, of course I am. But I'm thinking, yeah, but you didn't take my offer the first time. and It was a valid offer. So yeah, so I, so immediately I'm thinking, okay, I'm interested still, but you know, the price is going to be different now. I gave you my best, I gave you my best offer before. Now I'm going to lower the ball a little bit. <laughs> so <laughs> I mean, you didn't take my offer. So at any rate, he says, okay, well, let, let, let's talk numbers. And so I gave him an offer that was about 10% lower than what I had initially offered him. And he took it. Wow. And, and let me tell you, I, I froze. I'm like, okay, well, what, do I, what do I do now? <laughs> it wasn't supposed to happen this fast. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so I, I was at least smart enough to say, let me give you a call back later today with, you know, with the uh, the letter of intent and we'll get it all drafted up and et cetera, et cetera. And we'll get things moving. I at least knew what to do when, you know, when the offer was accepted. And so we, we did it and the deal got closed. That was also fun because it was 
it was 39 individual units and you had to do the inspections all that kind of all that's just that's all busy work as far as i'm concerned i mean it's a, it's a process it's hard to go wrong if you do the process right there's a template you put in place and you you hire inspectors and you know you check the books and make sure the numbers that you're getting are valid and you look at tax returns to verify that the income and all that due diligence stuff i mean it's it's a process but it's just that. It's just a process. It, you, don't, you don't need to fear it. It's just a process. And it's, but it's a lot of stuff, a lot of steps. So nevertheless, we did all the process. We got to closing and, and we, we've held the property. We've increased the, the, the value uh, quite a bit. Did a lot of renovations in the very beginning and to, to get it stabilized. You know, some of the occupants had to go because they just weren't good occupants. Uh, we lost about, I'd say, four, four to five, that's it, uh, with a large portfolio, four to five occupants. We just weren't taking good care of the location. We put our systems in place. Again, I've been looking for systems all the while so that when an opportunity came up, I could just plug and play. And so we found a, a great property manager to help us out on the ground. And so my responsibility became to became managing the asset manager and helping with all the big decisions and so forth and so on. It was just a fantastic opportunity. And uh, we, we still hold it today. It's great. It's performing very, very well. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that when he accepted your offer, you didn't know what to do. Right. Uh, <laughs> because, you know, as, as a re residential real estate agent, I see that a lot, right? I help first time buyers a lot of the time putting in an offer to buy a house and they want it. But at the same time, they kind of fear that actually happening because That's right. then it means there's an obligation on your shoulders. There's, there's Indeed. next steps. And, and so it's kind of ironic because yeah, a lot of times, yes, is the thing we fear the most, right? You better but, believe it. Um, but that's exciting. And, um, you know, you've shared a lot with us, you know, I guess the last thing I'd ask is if, if you have any major message that you'd like to just share with, with our audience, with the world. I do. Yeah, I do. I've given a lot of thought to this part and I, you know, I've, I've watched, a number of podcasts because that's how I supplement the education. And I've been to a ton of different RIAs and, you know, and I've also, let me just step back for a second. And I've also, I'm also a coach, right? I, I'm not a real estate coach, although I, I, I do a fair share of that, but I'm a sports coach also. And quick story that comes to mind is I, I was coaching a, a small little league football team for the uh, boys and girls club. And uh, the, the team was called the Mighty Mites. You know, they were uh, six, seven, eight years old. It was just, just the cutest little kids you can imagine. You know, the helmets look like little bobbleheads because they're running down the field and their head's moving, right? But, but I remember I had this, this kid who was on the team and he was the tiniest kid you can ever imagine. And, you know, I, I was a little nervous initially that maybe he was too small because all the other kids were much bigger than he was. But he said... I, I, I asked him one day, I said, well, what, who's your favorite player? You know, and he was like, ah, oh, he gave me a whole bunch of names and they were all wide receivers, right? So I said, okay, well then you're going to be a wide receiver. And he said, okay, great. He was happy with that. And he didn't catch a ball all practice, right? <laughs> I mean, he just, he was terrible. And it, 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 it was just, it was the funniest thing because I thought to myself immediately, he's, he's going to be my pet, my pet project for the season. We're going to make mm -hmm. sure this little guy is successful. And so the season went by and I would put him in, I mean, in practice, he would work hard. He would come early, you know, he would, he would do whatever I asked him to do. He didn't, he didn't moan and groan and we're doing wind sprints and push-ups and crunches and leg raises. He did everything he needed to do to be a great wide receiver. Right. But he just didn't have that last piece of the puzzle. Right. And so I remember it was the, it was the, the last it was the last game of the season. And of course he was like second or third string, but he started. I made sure that he was going to start. We're going to, one way or the other, we're going to end this season with this little guy starting, right? We already had eight or nine games throughout the season and he was doing his part, but just never really a superstar. And at any rate, we put him in and we, we made this play. We wrote this play and designed it around him. And, and we, you know, we made sure we had the, you know, we had the, the quarterback, uh, do a, a drop back in a shotgun formation to have a little more time so the O-line could, could block the defenders and, and give him time to run his little route and, you know, try to get open and everything. And I remember the quarterback just launched it and this little guy caught it. And, oh, I, I, and I don't remember him catching a pass all season, right? He, he caught this ball. Now, he didn't score a touchdown, but it didn't matter. We celebrated that catch like it was the Super Bowl. 
Right. And so my, my point is, my point, <laughs> I'm going to try to tie this in. Right? My, my, my point is never, ever stop trying. Never, ever stop trying because the, because it, it makes the accomplishment that much sweeter when you finally get the accomplishment. And, and had I stopped, had I stopped trying, had, had a little guy on the, the, the on the team stopped trying, had, it, 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 stopped, it, it would, have ne- would have never happened. And I, I haven't seen him since, you know, I'm, you know, again, it's been years since I coach, but I'd like to know, and maybe even do some statistics on what kind of accomplishments he's been able to obtain since then, because his confidence level was boosted. Right. I mean, he finally I mean, he tried and tried and tried for whatever reason. He tried and tried and tried whatever his motivation was. He kept trying and kept trying. Maybe he had a, I don't know, inferiority complex and he just kept trying and kept trying. Or maybe he was being bullied. He just kept, I don't know. And I hope it was it was positive, and not negative. But the point is, he just kept trying for some reason. He never gave up. And then, you know, we put him in a position where he could be successful because he's around like minded individuals. And when he was finally successful, I tell you, I mean, it was I went, I, you know, I, when he got to the sideline, I grabbed him, I picked him up, I hugged him. You know, it was one of those moments where, you know, you feel like you've changed the world. And, and in his eyes, we probably did. Right. We probably did. So my, my message to anyone who's trying to get into in real estate and larger deals is absolutely keep trying, surround yourself around folks who are doing the very same thing that you want to do. Not those who are trying to do it, the ones who are doing it. If you stay in that environment, you will absolutely accomplish it. And it's going to be the best feeling you've ever had. I mean, it'll, 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 change, it'll change everything. And one thing I'll add too is, as someone who's relatively new in this world, yes. I've found this group of people to be so welcoming, oh, so yeah. accommodating, and so willing to help you, Right. Yes. I've done networking before in other circles and it's not the same. It's a bunch of people talking about how awesome I am. I'm the best. I'm the best. I've done this. And I went to some fancy school. The real estate world, at least in this multifamily networking that I've done, has been full of very humble, good people trying to help you. And they're focused on how they can add value to you. And so it's very encouraging. And I, I'll echo what you said and just encourage people to, to get in the game, network, and that's and, and and start your education at least that way. That's true. And the doors very, will open. Yeah. Very, very true. Just don't very, stop. Just don't stop. Thank you, man. It's a really good story. Um, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, I already knew you pretty well, but um, I've learned a lot about you here. And I, I'm just very impressed. Again, I'm happy to call you my friend. And oh, I'm, likewise, likewise. I'm honored to have you as the first guest on this show. So thank you. Oh, no, it's my honor to be here and happy to, to share. And, and I hope this... This, this 30 minutes, 40 minutes helps someone or help a whole lot of someone's to, to change their trajectory. Well, thank you. One last thing is we didn't get to why you're in Spain. Oh, yes, I'm in Spain. So so funny story, my my talk about never giving up. So my my middle, I have three boys and uh, they all play soccer. And uh, the the middle son wanted to become a professional soccer player. And he's a good soccer player, but he you know, he didn't, it's just like real estate. He's, he's thought, well, you know, I'd like to have a multifamily property, but you know, I don't think I'll, I have what it takes to get there. So he had that same kind of attitude. And, uh, I kept asking him, you know, he had a couple of friends who were playing in better academies and he was, then he was playing in. I said, well, why don't you ask those guys how they connected the dots and normally had any real good information to offer him. So I just, I just reverted back to what I do. You know, I just figured, okay, let me just sit down with you. I'm talking about my, my middle son, sit down with you and let's just figure this, the, the strategy, figure, figure this thing out. How can we get you recognized? How can we do some marketing? So I had him prepare a highlight reel from all his games and he's a pretty good player. And, but none, none of that compares to the big leagues, of course, but he's a pretty good, youthful player. And so I said, okay, well, let's put together a highlight reel and let's try to reach out to as many people we can reach out to who are in and around the soccer game. Not, not those who are trying, but those who are doing it, professionals, coaches. I don't care if it's the water boy. Let's, you know, let's, he knows someone who's in the games. Let's reach out to everyone we possibly can. So we did that. And, and he admit, admits to himself uh, later on, he admitted to himself that admitted to me that he didn't think it was going to work. It was just too big of uh, uh, an accomplishment for him to comprehend. So anyway, we 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 spent we spent about three three or four weeks where it must have been every single night for about 
three hours until the wee hours in the morning. We were reaching out, emailing, trying to find coaches' email addresses, telephone numbers, organizations, just going on and on and on. And we talked to local MLS teams in the U.S. We, we talked to teams in Europe. And we just kept going on and on and on. Finally, we got a, a message back from uh, a team here in Spain. Actually, there were, there were two teams here in Spain. And, and so we thought, okay, this is great. Now this is step two. Now I got my, got my offer accepted. Now what do I do now? Right. <laughs> so, so we, so we, we, we told the, the, the coach that we'd be interested in, in a conversation. And he says, sure, absolutely. That's, that's the next step. Let's have a conversation. Let's see if, you know, how serious you know, your son is and at least explain what to expect and see if we have a match. And so we, we did, we got on, had a Zoom call and uh, my wife and I are sitting there and my son is sitting there and we're talking to this coach and he's going through his own story of how he ended up becoming, uh, he was a professional player, he got hurt, now he's a coach, et cetera. And talking about the team and talking about Spain, the difference between soccer in the US and here in Spain, et cetera. And, and we thought this was just a get to know you conversation. And, you know, to, again, like he said, to see how serious Cyrus was, I'm sorry, Cyrus is my son's name. And lo and behold, at, at the end of the conversation, we, we spoke for about an hour at the end of the conversation, the coach asked us, when can Cyrus come over here to Spain? Because the season's about to start. And we, we look at each other and, and we, we were all floored. Like we thought it was just a conversation. Yeah. And, 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 but he had seen enough of the highlights from the video we had sent over and he had known enough about the school my my son had attended and their school team etc cetera, etc cetera. kind of find out he knew more about my son's high school than we thought we didn't know he knew anything about this, my son's high school so high school team so at any rate he said come on over and we have a spot for you and usually you come over and you get a trial so you, you fly out you stay there for a couple of weeks they get an idea of how well you gel how good your skills are and they'll tell you in a couple of weeks, yay or nay, you can stay for a period of time or no, you don't, you're not up to par, you can go. And they just, they dismiss you. It really, it's a machine. But uh, uh, he, he came over here with an opportunity. He, he, he lives in a, a long-term stay dormitory environment with, with the team. They're in a bubble. So it keeps down the coronavirus issues. He practices every single day. And uh, he's been here for 90 days. And he's gone from being you know, second string on their team to now being a first string player, which shows he's progressing. They, they, it's, it's a whole operation. And so I'm here, actually. I've been, I've been here also for 90 days because it, it all happens so fast that as a father, you think, oh, it's my 16-year-old. Let me go and make sure things are right. And, you know, it's, it's 4,000 miles away. So I just want to make sure that he had a nice transition, that it's all we thought it was, and it is, and then some. And just to, to be here and share some of the experience. And again, I wouldn't be able to do this had it not been for the real estate investments that we've made, because that has given me the flexibility to be here. And, uh, and I'm still, while here, if there's Wi-Fi and a computer, I can still work, I can still manage, I can still look for other assets and, and do the networking that I always do. So real estate has allowed me to help this young man pursue his dream. And I actually leave next week. So it's a kind of a bittersweet ending, but it's fantastic. I'm leaving him in a good situation. I've met the entire staff and all the players and I've watched all his games and his scrimmages and it's, it's fantastic. He's, he's, he's right at home. So and, I, and again, just for everyone, how old is he? He's 16. 16. Yeah, he just turned, just turned 16. He just moved across the Atlantic. <laughs> yeah, he did. And, and, and again, and the message, the message for him, uh, the message to other people uh, his age is again, remove the glass ceiling. And it, cause most would be fearful. Many would be fearful to live away from home. And he's never lived away from his parents before. I mean, his, his older brother is, you know, in a university living on, on campus, but he's 18. So you know, I, I guess that, but that two years is a big deal. That, that two years is a big differential yeah. and from 16 to 18, he's here. He's, you know, it's not as if, it's not as if he could survive without learning the, the language it's everything at once, you know, sing, you throw him in the deep end and he has to swim and, and he's doing just fine. So, um, again, it's just removing the glass ceiling and letting, letting nature take its course and trying to become more efficient. I give him the same messages that I, 
I hopefully have conveyed to the audience here today that just remove the glass ceiling, put a process in place and love the process and the results will come. Beautiful. Well, that's a really powerful message. And, uh, thank you, Eric. I'm, yeah, I appreciate again, I'm really honored to have you on the show and call you my friend. All right. You take care. Pleasure is mine. Pleasure is mine. All right. All talk right. soon.